So to begin, is this amplifying at the back? Yeah. To begin with, I'd like to try to put the practice of meditation, although in some ways I find the word meditation somewhat restrictive. Often we think of it as uh, performing certain exercises in order to get certain results. But to think of meditation more as the cultivation of a certain sensibility, something that encompasses whatever we do, wherever we are. And perhaps it begins, I think it's probably true in my own case, it begins with those kind of primary questions that surface in our life from time to time, often around moments of of crisis, moments of awareness of our own death, of sickness, maybe also of birth, when a new being is brought into the world, when we are in the presence of those who are very old, whose life is coming to an end, Experiences like these that um, suddenly make us aware um, of our own condition, that we too are mortal and subject to these things. So in my own case, Buddhist meditation, Buddhist practice has always kept coming back to these kinds of primary questions for which I do not think there are any kind of final or right or wrong answers. These are the great imponderables of our existence. And I feel at the heart of all spiritual traditions, religious traditions, philosophical traditions, how much they might, no matter how much they argue and dispute with one another, at root, I think they're all human attempts with their inevitable weaknesses and failings uh, to come to terms with what is going on in our life, in the big picture. Meditation recently has, of course, been much um, used in, say, dealing with health issues or relapse into depression and different other um, uh, sicknesses and illnesses that have, and it has proven to be very helpful. But again, I think that can, to some degree, be a distraction. Um, we may become impressed that these ancient Buddhist meditations are still viable in a modern world and can be measured to be effective. But that can, I think, distract us from what would have been their primary purpose, which is to provide us with a set of, of skills, a set of tools to encourage a 
a sensibility concerning what the Chinese call the great matter of birth and death. One of the meditations that I did while I was a a Tibetan Buddhist monk many years ago now, nearly 40 years ago, when I was in my early 20s, was um, a daily reflection on death, beginning with a reflection on the, the certainty of death, And one would sit down, as we're sitting down here, and quieten the mind. In the Tibetan tradition, we would recite prayers or do certain breathing exercises. And then, when the mind is settled, just turning your attention to the fact that the only thing that's certain um, in the future, the only thing we know for sure that will happen, is that one day we will die. Everything will come to a stop. Again, intellectually, we know that. That's not any great news. But it's one thing to know that theoretically. It's another thing to know it um, existentially. In other words, in terms of our deepest feelings as to who and what we are as mortal creatures. And I think a great deal of our time, not consciously, uh, is, is spent, as it were, avoiding that kind of awareness. It's almost too destabilizing. We might feel it to be unnecessarily gloomy or depressing. The second step in the reflection is to consider that this one certain thing is completely uncertain as to when it will occur. In other words, although it is certain that we will die, we have no guarantee of when that will be. We have statistical probabilities that given that we keep healthy, etc., etc., we'll live to 70 or 80 years old. But of course, there's no certainty about that. And again, I think this is something we prefer not to look at too closely. After all, we love life, and that's an entirely good thing. But strangely, I find that the more that we bring to mind these kinds of primal existential facts of life, the more that actually enriches and enhances our sense of being alive. In other words, whatever we do to somehow forget or ignore or deny our own death is also a forgetting and an ignoring and a denial of our own life. Because life and death are not two separate things. Life good, death bad. But rather, it's almost inconceivable um, to even have an idea of what life is without 
its corollary of death. In other words, life is, in its very nature, a movement towards its own end. So when I was being taught this by my Tibetan teachers, they would say, you know, watch your breath. Feel your heartbeat. Every breath you take is one breath less. Every uh, heart, every beat of your heart is one beat less. That um, our lives are profoundly entropic. Uh, we're, we're running out of steam. We just spent a couple of days here in the Totnes area visiting some old friends that we knew when we lived here 15 years or so ago. Some of them we haven't seen since then. And one of the first things, of course, that one notices uh, is, is, is how we've changed. Although it feels like almost a click of the fingers since we last met and spoke, the physical evidence shows that the hair's got greyer, the faces have got more wrinkled, uh, we're not quite so sure on our feet. Um, certain tragedies and births and deaths and so on have occurred since then. And we talk about people who are no longer here. And that gives one, as it were, both the, uh, the pleasure of meeting old friends and keeping connections, but also the unavoidable um, awareness that this is all running out. And how many more 15-year gaps, especially at, at my age, uh, can we expect to be able to renew those acquaintances? Probably not many. One or two, perhaps. The third part of this Tibetan reflection is to then, in a way, pose oneself a question. If death is the only certain thing, if it could happen at any time, what should I do now? In other words, that awareness is not just giving us some deeper information that we'd somehow overlooked, but it actually uh, propels us to ask certain questions. It propels us to ask, <clears throat> for example, you know, what really matters? You know, what, given the fact that I have a finite span of time left here, you know, how can I live most fully? How can I realize what matters to me most in this time that's left? And so that brings us back to, um, again, a very intimate encounter with uh, the very flesh and blood of our own existence. And that, I feel, is where meditation begins and ends. 
right at that point. Everything else, all of the theories and doctrines and beliefs and cosmologies and so forth and so on that um, are also part and parcel of particularly religious traditions in some senses are entirely secondary. Uh, The primary concern has to be, I feel, our um, honesty and openness and presence to the basic questions that our life presents to us. I've recently been (coughs) reading um, works from the Epicurean tradition. Epicurus was a a Greek philosopher um, of the so-called Hellenistic period. Um, He was born in about 360 BC, which is about 40 years after the death of the Buddha, but obviously in Greece. And he founded a school which is now called Epicureanism. And his followers lived in a garden just on the edge of Athens. And his philosophy, I feel, um, is really quite in line with what I most appreciate in the early Buddhist teachings. Um, Epicurus did not believe in, um, in, in, in life after death. He didn't believe in the efficacy of gods. Um, he was actually a materialist. He believed that the only things that were ultimately real were atoms and the void in which they moved. But he wasn't a materialist in the sense that he was unconcerned with what we would call spiritual or religious questions. On the contrary, his view of the world um, uh, led him to a a very deep understanding of human life, um, a great importance for him in living a simple life, um, not getting drawn into lots of distracting affairs. He greatly valued uh, friendship, the cultivation of friendship. And for him, philosophy was not an academic discipline, as we might find it presented in universities today, but it was inseparable from the process of what he calls uh, healing the soul, or the, the psyche the mind. And he too was acutely aware of death. In fact, many of his teachings are about becoming aware of death and its implications. Very little of Epicurus's writings have come down to us today. Apparently he wrote volumes and volumes and volumes of text, all of which have been lost largely through the suppression of the classical Greek schools by the Catholic Church in about the 6th century AD. All that rests to us are a few verses and uh, three or four letters. Here are a couple of the verses 
these are from what are called the Vatican sayings. Um, not that Epicurus had anything to do with the Vatican, but the Vatican was where this little cluster of fragments was stored and in the, in the library. Some pass their lives fitting themselves out for life, forgetting that when born they suckled a mortal drink. We protect ourselves against most things, but against death we live in a city without walls. Now again, Epicurus is not simply pointing this out, but I feel very much seeks to internalize this kind of awareness um, so that it begins to make a difference in the very quality of our life. Now, as I pointed out already, awareness of death when done in a contemplative and a reflective way, does not lead into a kind of morbid or gloomy introspection, but actually awakens within us a greater uh, uh, appreciation, uh, enjoyment, uh, astonishment at the fact that we're here at all the fact that we're alive. Now this point is made not as far as I'm aware in the fragments of writings of Epicurus himself, but we find it in um, a poem written by one of Epicurus's Roman followers, a man called Lucretius, who lived um, at the end of the Roman Republic, about 50 BC. And fortunately, his poem of 7,000 lines has survived, miraculously almost. And in it, we find um, a a very beautiful, uh, poetic expression of the Epicurean philosophy. And I'm just going to read out a passage from Book Two. Uh, the, the poem is called On the Nature of Things, De Natura Rerum. Behold the pure blue of the heavens and all that they possess, the roving stars, the moon, the sun's light, brilliant and sublime. Imagine if these were shown to men now for the first time, suddenly and with no warning, what could be declared more wondrous than these miracles no one before had dared believe could even exist? Nothing. Nothing could be quite as remarkable as this. So wonderful would be the sight. Now, however, people hardly bother to lift their eyes to the glittering heavens. 
They are so accustomed to the skies. I find this passage very moving um, in the sense that it, it points out how what is perhaps the most remarkable, the most mystical, the most uh, uh, transcendent experience is the one that we're actually having right now. And that's the one we fail to see. And instead, we spend our lives sometimes seeking for something more, something greater, something more um, true or real than this rather shabby world down here. And you'll find this in all or most of the religious traditions, certainly in Christianity and Buddhism, that there's often this strain of thought that gives the impression that, that this life is somehow just a, a transient moment in something far greater, that this life is, in a way, shot through with suffering and pain and distress, and we somehow have to see beyond it or through it or below it in order to tap into what is really real and really true. We need to get into deep states of, of mystical absorption and then we might get a glimpse of the truth. But what Lucretius is pointing out in the form essentially of a thought experiment He's saying, imagine if the stars, the moon, the heavens, the sun, the trees outside, the rooks, and all of that stuff were shown to us now for the first time. Try and imagine that you'd never ever seen any of these things, heard about them, known about them, and suddenly, bang, sitting in this room here now, were for the first time made apparent. What could be declared more wondrous than these miracles no one before had dared believe could even exist? Nothing, nothing could be quite as remarkable as this. Now, however, he says, people hardly bother to lift their eyes to the glittering heavens. They are so accustomed to the skies. But we could say the same about the trees out there or the grass or the cows in the field. We've got so used to them that they don't stir anything within us whatsoever. We're indifferent. We're uh, slightly anesthetized to experience we're kind of numb and of course the the feeling that's so prevalent in our society um, is that of boredom that um, uh, we find ourselves constantly seeking some kind of stimulation something new something different something stimulating something exciting It's, it's very much 
I feel what we do in the practice of cultivating mindfulness or attention. And I think it quite remarkable in a way that when the Buddha presented meditation, he presented it first and foremost as a process of becoming aware of the most basic uh, elements of our own experience. So we start with the breath, the sensations in the body, the sounds that we hear, the smells that we smell, the tastes that we taste, the thoughts that bubble up in our minds, the moods, the feelings that are constantly coursing through our bodies, preoccupying, preoccupying our thoughts. So instead of meditating on something uh, deep and profound, trying to turn our minds inwards to the nature of our divine awareness or something, he turns the mind to the actual moment-to-moment arising and passing of this experience that we're having right now. But because we're so familiar with it, as Lucretius would have said, we're so accustomed to it, it strikes us as kind of banal or mundane or uninteresting or boring. Meditation is often experienced as boring. Now the problem, I think, doesn't lie in in the meditation. The problem, problem lies in the extent to which we've become complacent and and conditioned and expectant um, to how things appear and how they are, including ourselves and others. So the cultivation of mindful attention is, I think, in a very important respect, um, the coming to terms or the recovering of the fact that we're alive at all and the fact that this will not last and the fact that this is something almost um, uh, mind-stoppingly strange and extraordinary and wondrous and also tragic and painful. That's part of it too. And one way I've been exploring in my writing as to how one might capture that in just a couple of words is in the, in, in the expression, uh, the everyday sublime. The everyday sublime. Now, sublime is a term that um, we use very freely and often today, but often we forget what the the roots of the word are about. Uh, you sometimes read in the newspaper that a, a soccer player is, is somehow playing a sublime game. Uh, but that's not quite how the word originally was um, meant to be used. 
The term does go back to the, the Roman period, the Greek period, I think. But in any case, it really became defined in the late 18th century, particularly by an Irish philosopher called Edmund Burke. Subsequently, this was picked up by the Romantic poets and um, became very central in the thinking of people like Wordsworth and Coleridge and Keats and others. And even in, in modern art, we still occasionally find this term. There's a painting called um, by Barnett Newman, the American abstract painter, called The Sublime is Now. But what does the sublime mean? What does it mean for something to be sublime? Well, according to Burke, it had to do with those experiences that are both simultaneously um, fascinating and terrifying. Fascinating and terrifying. And the Romantic poets... Uh, particularly Coleridge, um, would seek out experiences of the sublime. They'd go out onto the sea in little boats in the middle of a storm. Something which is both fascinating, overwhelming, almost irresistibly attractive, and yet at the same time is terrifying. It brings us right to the edge of you know, the fact that our life might come to an end. It's violent. It's um, overwhelming. That's what sublime means. And I'm sure all of us have had moments in our lives, maybe in nature, maybe when we're in love, maybe when we're contemplating a great work of art, perhaps when we're sitting in meditation or when we're participating in, say, a religious ceremony. Or also, of course, when we confront, let's say, the reality of, of death or birth, birth and death. These things are, are, are fascinating, we're drawn to them, but also there's something kind of scary, upsetting. These experiences upset our, um, our comfort zone. Um, And the comfort zone, which is quite a useful little phrase, is basically that place where we feel more or less in charge, more or less able to manage, able to cope. A few years ago, I took my brother and sister-in-law to India for the first time. And, um, you know, their idea of doing it was nice, comfortable Western-style hotels. But one afternoon we went to um, visit the big mosque in Old Delhi. I don't know if any of you have been to Old Delhi, but that's not what one might call a comfort zone. And uh, you can't even take a taxi into the mosque. You have to stop, then get into a little rickshaw thing, and then that weaves through these tiny dilapidated old muddy streets then you get off then you have to walk and if you've never done that before it's kind of scary and fascinating 
It's it's very much a, a, a sublime kind of experience. It's not fun necessarily. The other characteristic of the sublime is that um, it exceeds our capacity for representation. That's the word phrase that's usually given. It exceeds our capacity for representation. It's not something that we can conveniently or easily um, capture in thoughts or concepts or words. It's beyond language, as it were. It's something that makes our jaw drop. It leaves us somehow speechless. It might lead to an inspiration to write a poem or painting or something. But the actual experience is kind of thought-stopping. Coleridge said that the experience of the sublime suspends the power of comparison. In other words, we can't, in those moments, keep on going, oh, this is better than that. Oh, I like this, I don't like that. All of that way of thinking is just not working anymore in those moments. And I like to think that that is pretty close to what the cultivation of mindfulness and awareness and concentration in meditation brings us to. A similar kind of opening to our felt experience of this moment in which the habitual chatter of the mind, the the storytelling, the theorizing... uh, is somehow not able to really work anymore. That doesn't mean that we just stop thinking. The mind tends to do that, whatever's going on. But we find, at least in moments, or often in a retreat, particularly a longer retreat, we find ourselves settling more and more into that kind of awareness. Um, on a retreat like this, we've come, most of us, from a busy life. The mind is probably still running with the same things it was running with yesterday. Um, it's not easy to settle and just be quiet and be still and to be focused. That usually takes a day or so. We may also start feeling very sleepy and tired, which is understandable. We need, as it were, to somehow go through that to reach the kind of of still, quiet attention that allows us not to experience something beyond what's going on here, but to experience what's going on here from an entirely different point of view. One in which the mind begins of its own accord to just sort of quieten down. We may find that we do a sitting of 40 minutes, say, in here. We go outside. And for a few moments, or maybe for the, you know, for the rest of the day, we're quietly amazed 
at what we're seeing and what we're hearing, what we're tasting when we eat. This is what the Buddha calls uh, sampajanya, uh, usually translated as full awareness. And it's sometimes used more or less synonymously with um, the term mindfulness. Sometimes it's used as a compound, sati sampajanya, mindful awareness. And when he describes mindful, uh, this full awareness, it's not something that occurs only in certain you know, states of concentrated meditation, but in all of our activities, when we're walking ahead or walking back or flexing our limbs or carrying our bowl, he says, or wearing our clothes or going to the toilet or eating or drinking or lying down, sleeping, all of these things are done in a condition of full awareness. Now he doesn't actually tease out what that feels like. I think in many ways the texts that we find in the the canon should be treated more as um, instructions rather than descriptions. In other words, this is what you do, see what happens. We're not going to try and put that into words for you, but try it out and see the effect. Again, perhaps I'm preempting your own experience, but my sense is that often, and I found this certainly for myself, it's what's kept my practice of meditation going, as it were, is that it opens one up to what in our own culture, we call the experience of the sublime. It opens up what Lucretius describes so beautifully as um, seeing these things for the first time. In other words, I find that meditation and awareness practices are constantly starting from the experience of where we are now and continually returning to it without it ever being boring in a strange way this term vipassana which means seeing something vividly or intensely is not just some kind of sort of mechanical cognitive act but rather it's the capacity or the sensibility um, to discover in experience something that is endlessly fascinating. But as we penetrate into the flesh of experience, we also cannot but be aware that it's constantly slipping away. It's constantly vanishing. And as it vanishes... It reappears, it vanishes, it reappears. But it's not something that's really in our control. It's not something that we have some sort of power over, or only in a very limited extent. And this is the scary bit. This is the 
the slightly terrifying aspect of meditation is that it opens us up to what the Buddha calls impermanence and dukkha or suffering or conflict and anatta. Um, the fact that this is not me and it's not mine that this physical process of the body, the emotions, the thoughts, all of this stuff that happens to us is not anything intrinsically to do with Stephen or Jane or Joe or Fred. It's just the stuff of the world, the stuff of life, pouring forth and endlessly being renewed. And probably much of our, uh, our social norms, our um, conditioning as we're educated and prepared for life in the world and making a living and getting a good job and all of this stuff, which is of course necessary, is at one level also a means to somehow uh, restrain or, or hold back from this experience this encounter this presence with what's going on you know deep down or deep within or in the moment so in my own case i would say that meditation originates <clears throat> and culminates in the everyday sublime and to this extent <clears throat> Uh, I have little interest in, um, in, 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 in sort of non-ordinary states of meditation. Um, anything that somehow takes me away from the, the sensory richness of experience itself, be that getting into a deep state of absorption or you know, visualizing Buddhas and Bodhisattvas or reciting mantras or getting an out-of-body experience or lucid dreaming or channeling cyclic energies. All of this, I feel, somehow misses the point. Uh, perhaps some of these exercises are very good at, at, at supporting the practice of awareness and so on, but personally I've never been drawn to them. I'm interested in meditation as a process of embracing what's happening to this organism as it touches its environment in this moment. For me, that's where meditation begins and ends. I'm sometimes accused of rejecting mystical experience. Um, but that's not correct. To me, the, the most uh, profound mystical experience is the one that's happening right now that we don't notice. The, the mystical is not something that lies beyond or behind appearances, but becomes apparent when we start to notice what's appearing from another perspective, not the perspective of me wanting this and me not liking that, but rather just being totally open to this everyday sublime. 
So in other words, the mystical is not something that transcends the world, but actually saturates it. It's present uh, imminently uh, in whatever's going on. The fact that there is something rather than nothing. The philosopher Wittgenstein um, famously said, I think in the Tractatus, he said, the mystical is not how the world is, but that it is. That the world is, is the mystical. Now, in, in a more Buddhistic language, um, the practice of, of awareness, the practice of mindfulness, um, is not you know, just one exercise that will somehow sort everything out, but rather it's the entryway into another relationship with experience. I'll come back to this later in in the week, uh, probably in some detail. But mindfulness for me is the practice of the first noble truth, which I prefer to call the first noble task. And that is to fully know dukkha, to fully know um, this experience we're having right now. Unfortunately, well, maybe not unfortunately, this is just the way it's turned out. The first noble truth is often presented as, you know, existence is, is suffering, as a kind of statement of fact. Now, that may or may not be true. I'm not actually terribly interested in proving or disproving that point or arguing it. What I feel has um, happened is the the teaching that started out as an instruction has turned into a dogma. You know, existence is suffering. Whereas if you look at it as an instruction, as something to do, then it's dukkha parinya in Pali, fully know dukkha. Fully know dukkha. And what does it mean to fully know? Well, again, I would just repeat almost what I've said up to this point. All of that, paying attention, being aware of death, uh, noticing what exceeds our capacity for representation, learning how to be still and focused and calm in the midst of what is both fascinating and simultaneously terrifying, all of that is about fully knowing dukkha. And the fully knowing of dukkha is the step that then leads to a transformation in how we respond to our experience. Rather than habitually trying to get what we like and get rid of what we don't like, we let go of that strategy in such a way that those habits of desire and hatred and fear begin to fall away of their own accord 
so that we find a still point in our experience from which we can respond in a different way. Quite recently, actually, I was looking at another term that's again more or less synonymous with the uh, expression mindful awareness or full awareness. And in Pali, it's the expression yoniso manasikara. Manasikara means attention. And yoniso is usually translated as something like wise attention or careful attention. It's a common common expression in the Pali canon. Um, Yoniso manasikara, careful attention. Wise attention. But if you look at the actual root meaning of the word yoniso in Pali, it doesn't have anything to do with being careful or being wise. That's an interpretation. That that is the classical Theravadin way of interpreting. It's also, when it was translated into Tibetan, yoniso was translated as Tsulshindu, which means something like appropriate, appropriate attention. The word yoniso, however, is rooted in the Pali word yoni, or the Sanskrit Pali yoni. And yoni means womb uh, or vagina. And yoniso is an ablative. It means from the womb, literally. So it's attention that comes from the womb. Um, It's odd. I mean, I've known that yoni means this for donkey's years, but it's never actually registered until a few weeks ago when I made the effort to look it up. And I was really surprised that um, uh, a term that is quite explicitly talking of a womb um, is never translated that way. It's almost as though you feel that the monks were a little bit embarrassed about that. So it got forgotten. And so we talk of wise attention, which is, of course, a wonderful thing. But we miss something at the same time. So what would it mean to be an attention that comes from the womb? Well, in the Pali Tech Society Dictionary, they suggest it means um, an attention that gets to the root of things, which would suggest in English we could translate it as radical attention. Radical attention. We can also, of course, if we think through the metaphor of the womb, A womb is where something is nurtured. Obviously, an embryo, a child, is nurtured. In other words, it does entail a certain kind of caring, but not caring in the sense of careful, but a nurturing, caring attention through which something will then be born. 
So yonisomanasikara, this, this radical attention, is also an attention that is very nurturing and caring of our experience, living in such a way that we, we hold our attention in a certain way, there's a certain maybe gentleness, a certain kindness, a love for what's being nurtured that might at some point in the future give birth to something new. It also, of course, suggests an attention uh, that's not coming from the head but is actually coming from deep down in the belly. And here we get resonances with, with Zen Buddhism. You know, putting your attention in your belly. So again, Yonis or Manasikara suggests an attention that's grounded in the body. And in this sense, again, I feel it supports the idea that meditation is not just about becoming wise or, or, or gaining insight, but it's very much the ongoing cultivation of a sensibility. A sensibility. Which is not reducible to proficiency in certain spiritual exercises. Although that could, of course, be very helpful. But the sensibility, I think, extends beyond being a good meditator. It extends to our whole relationship with our own bodies and our minds and our feelings, our whole relationship with the sensory world in which we are embedded, our relationship with others, other people, other forms of life, animals, birds, insects. And of course, I think nowadays we think of it more and more in terms of our, our, our primary relationship with the environment that allows us to live, the biosphere, as it were. So a radical attention, or full awareness, is something that necessarily is embodied. Uh, it's not just a mental act. It's something that's rooted in the body. And we experience this on a retreat, for example, just in the act of sitting or walking. The two primary practices we'll be doing are, of course, physical activities. Sometimes we feel that the body is just getting in the way of our being able to meditate properly. I'd be able to meditate if I didn't have this pain in my lower back. It would be dead easy to be mindful if I didn't have this tightness in my neck or if I didn't keep falling asleep. So the body easily gets demonized. And it's true that we do have to work on our posture, on our, our physical well-being in order to optimize how we can be present and aware and awake. But we must do that without somehow denigrating the body and feeling that what really matters is the clarity of mind, 
sharpness of mind. The body is just a kind of a dead weight that we have to lug around into this room. I think if we hold such a view, even subliminally, I think we need to be conscious of that and let it go. The meditation is rooted and grounded in the body and our embodiment. It's also a quality or a sensibility that is, um, is receptive. Now this is the way that Martine introduced it this morning, with listening. Um, listening is not something that you find the Buddha saying anything about much. It's just one of the senses. Um, in Zen Buddhism, it becomes more prominent, the idea that um, meditation is very much akin to hearing and listening to what's going on, being open and receptive to receive what's happening, rather than to be somehow training one's attention to look at this or be aware of that, as though it was a kind of looking with the eyes, instead of thinking of it as a listening or a hearing with the inner ear, as it were. And also, I feel that very much at the heart of of meditation is a sense of perplexity and wonderment, um, a sense of being surprised and astonished, which again takes us back to the passage from Lucretius. And in the course of this uh, week, we'll be coming back again and again to meditation as as embodied, as receptive, and as perplexed, and these constituting a kind of sensibility, something that we cultivate, you know, not only when we're sitting here or doing a formal exercise, but trying to bring that sensibility to bear on pretty much everything we do in our lives. It's unavoidable, I guess, that we give emphasis to sitting and walking. But you need to see that really as a kind of laboratory-like training exercise. But the practice really begins when we're outside the laboratory. This is a kind of preparatory, somewhat contrived um, exercise to reorient our priorities, to reconnect with the primacy of our birth and our death in order to renew the experience that we have in these remaining years of human life. So I'll stop there. And I'd like to say uh, just a few words about walking meditation, which is what we'll be doing until we come back here at quarter to twelve. Most of you, I think, have probably done some form of walking meditation before, so please, if you're used to doing this in a certain way, just continue. 
for those of you who are maybe not so familiar with walking meditation, I'd suggest that you find um, a patch of ground about 10 meters long. can be anywhere out in the woods now, out in the garden would be lovely. Stand still for a few minutes. Again, connecting your self with the earth, the ground, through your feet. Opening your attention as far as you can to what you hear and see and smell. Uh, what you're aware of as you stand there with your eyes half closed perhaps or closed. And then when you feel settled, then slowly walk up and then back along this little track you've created for yourself. And in doing that, not really doing much different from what you do when you sit here. In other words, attending closely to the experience that's happening in that moment. But because you're walking rather than sitting, you need to be more focused on the way the legs and the hips and the shoulders work together as you take one step, rest the foot on the ground again, take another step, rest the foot, lift, step, etc. To the point where you start to settle into the rhythm of walking, much in the same way as you settle into the rhythm of breathing. It's just another uh, sequence of sensations, really. It's more complex. It's more volitional. You choose to do it more. But nonetheless, once you settle into it, it becomes a quite natural, you know, uncontrived experience. Try to find a pace which is a little slower than you would normally walk. If you walk at your normal pace, then easily you just sort of slip into habit and the mind will wander off to all sorts of interesting places. But just try to slow it down so that you become more conscious of walking in itself. And again, as with breathing, as with sitting, there's nothing particularly you know, spiritual about walking. It's just one of many activities that constitute our, our human experience. What we're trying to do here is to integrate into that everyday experience another perspective, a sensibility, a quality of attention, a radical attention to what is actually taking place. To sort of break through the the, uh, the, the, the resistance of, of boredom and disinterest. To try to discover what's rather fascinating about this very ordinary act. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate